Cat Disgusted is a show about veterinary nursing. It is not a show about how to cure your sick pet. If your animal is sick, take it to the vet. Don't be a crazy person and use a podcast to cure your puking cat, dog, chinchilla, etc., etc. I think they would tell you the same thing. If they could. Mm, Which they can't. Which makes it hard. You know what's up. Take them to the vet. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Cat Disgusted, a podcast for veterinary technicians and the people and animals who love them. Each episode, we explore the best of times and the worst of times in veterinary nursing. I'm your host, Nicole Dickerson. I'm an RVT and veterinary technician specialist in emergency and critical care. And this is what happens. Hello, darling. Welcome back to Cat Disgusted. I have positive news in the world of COVID-19. And I wanted to start the episode by talking about that because I think it's, I think it's something that's important that we need to acknowledge. Um, I, I, what I want to do is I want to congratulate all of the veterinarians and all of the veterinary technicians in California for becoming part of the group 1A, which means the first group of people in the state of California that are able to receive the COVID-19 vaccine. What? That's a big, that's a big deal. It's a big deal. Um, and I'll tell you why. Um, I feel I feel like veterinary technicians are not seen as uh, health professionals. You know, our licenses come from the, the Department of Consumer Affairs in the state of California. They don't come from a health organization, like a health-based department. Um, and we all thought we were going to be bottom of the list to get vaccinated because we're not really seen as a priority um, in terms of, of being counted as healthcare professionals. So the CVMA, which is the uh, California Veterinary uh, Medical Association, they really pushed uh, the California state government to have veterinary technicians and veterinarians included in this first, found, in this first round of vaccines. I don't think that we talked about this the last time, but uh, COVID-19 has opened the gates of hell in emergency departments of small animal medicine all across the country. Uh, There's a couple of theories as to why. Um, It's been unrelentingly busy, and there's been unrelentingly long wait times for patients to be seen, unless you're actively dying. Um, One theory is that, uh, you know, people are not traveling and they're not uh, spending money on things that they normally would be spending money on. And they're uh, so they've got more income to spend on their pet's health care. Another part of that theory is that, you know, they've got more time to sit at home staring at their pets. So, you know, has a cat always looked like that? Um, is, is, is the dogs coughing? Has the dog always been coughing? How long has the dog been coughing? So, you know, there's, there's that element of it too. People have more time to sit in a parking lot uh, with their animals and wait for veterinary care. A lot of the emergency departments in particular are feeling this because a lot of the general practices uh, that, that these animals would normally be going to are no longer taking new clients. 
and they've pared down their services, they've pared down their staffing. And so people have no choice but to go to places where there, where there are no appointments, where it's first come, first serve, and those are emergency departments. Now, speaking of emergency departments, I should describe a little bit how uh, veterinary medicine is functioning these days in the world of masks and, and uh, social distancing. So we no longer allow, very few places are allowing clients to come into the clinic. Um, the only people that are in the clinic are the people that work there. And so what that means is when you come to emergency, uh, you're going to drive your car into the parking lot. Uh, you're going to call the hospital front desk from your car. You'll get either a receptionist or more likely a veterinary technician that's going to come to your car uh, and triage your animal in your car. Uh, now, we may, you know, depending on what the problem is, there may be vital signs that that technician takes while in the car, but if it's a cat and a carrier, I mean, the animal's just basically going to have to go inside. Uh, the owner does not go inside. So then all communication happens by phone, and that can be the doctor, and that's going to be the receptionist, and that's going to be the technician, you know, doing all the things that we normally do in the sequence of, in the sequence of events that happen when you come through emergency. Um, I did your animal's exam. Here are the results of the exam. Here's a problem that I think is going on. Um, here's a cost estimate in order for us to, to figure out what's going on. And now, okay, now we know what's going on. Here's another cost estimate for treatment. All that's happening over the phone. So the reason why I say waiting in cars for all this time is because all of that process is taking a lot longer. And it also is compounded by the fact that the longer process is with more people. So it's hell on earth right now to go into a veterinary emergency clinic as a client. And it's hell on earth as a technician. And those technicians are the ones that are exposed to the public a gazillion times a day. You know, a busy night in, um, in the emergency department that I was working in with, you know, me, say two or three other technicians, one doctor. I mean, if we saw 20 things, um, we were moving. Like that was a busy night, you know, 20 things within like, you know, six to eight hours, something like that. They are routinely seeing twice that number. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine in Washington. She said she saw 60 patients in a night shift. That's unreal. And all of those patients come in with humans that that technician is exposed to during triage. They're exposed to when they're taking estimates out there. If they're taking them out to the car, most likely they're not. They're probably on the phone. But guess what? All those technicians that are exposed to clients, they're all exposed to the clients they see. But then their whole other team, they're seeing other clients. And then all the veterinary technicians are all hanging out in the same hospital together. So God forbid one of them should have a direct exposure. They're going to expose everybody in the clinic. Anyway, I wanted to give you all a little bit of insight into how wonderful and deserved it is that veterinary technicians have moved up to the first tier of vaccination um, status in California. It's a big freaking deal. I received my vaccine. I received the Moderna vaccine, and that was two days ago. Let's see, today's Sunday. I received it on Friday afternoon. The shot itself was pain-free. I mean, as much as it can be. I hate needles, so whatever. Um, uh, my arm has been sore for the last two days, but it's getting better. Um, it is more sore than the flu shot. Uh, I haven't had my Tdap in like... 
I don't know, like long enough that I don't really remember if it was this sore. I feel like it's more localized. Like it's like where the needle went in. Like that's like the sore spot versus the Tdap one. I feel like kind of my whole upper arm was a little bit sore. But um, I've had no systemic feelings of illness at all. Uh, my understanding is the second round of vaccines can make you feel weird. And that's whether you get Pfizer or Moderna. So I'm kind of anticipating that a little bit because I got the Moderna one. Mine is going to be like three to four weeks out as opposed to more like two weeks out if you got the Pfizer one. But I have to say, I... I had everyone's been having moments getting this vaccine as veterinary technicians. Like there's been a lot of posting about it on social media, which I'm all about because yes, normalize this. This we, I, I am done living in this world. Let's normalize vaccination. Let's all get this shit taken care of now. So I love that. I knew that I too would probably have like a little moment in getting vaccinated. Um, I walked into, so they had converted a big conference room into a big vaccination station where I work now. And as I looked around the room, I see all these lab animal staff members. And the the reason I know who they are is just, you know, that we've got different colored scrubs for different things that happen. Um, and so depending if you're like a, a nurse for humans or if you're a veterinary or a veterinary technician or like an occupational therapist or if you're, you know, like all, the, all those various things um, across the campus, they all have different colored scrubs. And I look up and I see like there's like four people in my color scrubs and uh, they're not necessarily people that I recognize. So I know that they've got to be from uh, from another part of campus and likely uh, husbandry staff. Because I know all the veterinary technicians. And it was so, it felt so good to look around and see, like, you know what? You told us that we could get this vaccine. Well, here we are. Like, first in line, here we are. Stab us in the arm. Like, we are ready to get this done. And I felt proud because, you know, This is a big deal that we get to sit here and prevent disease. We are part of the solution. Also, the research that I work in, the research that these individuals work in, is the reason why this vaccine exists. And these are a lot of people. The husbandry staff, they are the blood in the veins of research. You can't do anything without these guys. They're the ones who are cleaning mouse cages. They're checking on the little mice to make sure that they're healthy. Um, They're notifying the doctors and technicians if they see things that concern them. You can't do anything without these guys. And here they are getting vaccinated. Like as soon as you told them that they could, the vaccine would not exist without these individuals involved. So I was so proud to be a part of, uh, of the research community and a part of this community that is now getting vaccinated in the first rounds for (sighs) COVID-19. Right? Feels good. Okay. So that was my, um, that's my, my positive update, which I was really excited to share. So, um, the second part of, uh, this episode is, is, is more, more back to our, our standard cat disgusted fair. Um, it's been a long time since we did a stupid breeds, uh, and I thought it, uh, I thought it was high time that we did one. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to introduce you to the stupid breed of hairless cats. How much is that dog in the window? <laughs> The one with the waggly tail. How much is that doggy in the window? I do hope that doggy's for sale. 
I must take a trip oh my to god okay so this is one of those things I know that everybody who has listened if you're listening to this show it is almost 100% guaranteed that you have seen a hairless cat so what we'll be doing here today is uh is demystifying them a little bit and uh, explaining why they look the way that they do um, and why humans are responsible for that. So the breed, there's actually a couple different breeds of hairless cats, and they they can look a little bit different depending on what they are. And the one that I want to focus on is called the Sphinx cat. Now, the Sphinx is the one that is the like the hairless, like the pinkies, the little pink wrinkly things that you see with the big bug eyes. That's the Sphinx breed. Um, it's a naturally occurring gene mutation that causes this. And of course, selective breeding uh, means that we're able to get that, that naturally occurring gene mutation to happen more often. Now, sometimes these cats will have like little fine hairs or little spots of hair. Um, the skin is the same tone as the hair would be. So there is a, such a thing as like a like a like a black hairless cat that's got darker skin, or a tabby hairless cat that's got little stripes on it. Um, something to mention about the hairlessness of them that I always thought was so strange is that the the normal body temperature for cats is higher than, than our own. Like it really varies between like a hundred and, and, and 102.5. That's their normal. So if you ever feel one of these hairless cats, it's the strangest thing. It's like you're holding a little like fuzzy, fuzzy hot water bottle because you're right up against their skin. So they feel really warm. Now, the crazies at the International Cat Association, they also note some breed definitions. There's a couple things that they want you to know. These guys have a kind of a wedge-shaped head, which I think is even more crazy looking because they don't have any like fur on their head. So it's just this little wedgy head. These big bug eyes, they've got big ears. Um, they've got a, kind of a more barrel-chested uh, look to them and this pot-bellied abdomen. These are all desirable characteristics, by the way. So they basically look like Smeagol from The Hobbit. That's their desirable characteristics that we see. And all of those, of course, accentuated by the fact that they have no hair. Um, they do have uh, a bit of a, a, a dog-like behavior. At least that's what uh, the International Cat Association would like you to know. I, I have to say, I haven't known a hairless cat personally, so I've, I'm, I'm kind of neutral. I'm Switzerland when it comes to how their behavior is altered. But, you know, these little hairless hobbit monsters bouncing around and greeting you at the door. I mean, okay, that, uh, that does sound kind of cute. I'll give them that. I, I, I will give them that. Um, I enjoy the hairless cats in small animal medicine because you can see all of the veins, which is amazing for cat venipuncture when you're learning. Uh, whenever there was a hairless cat, there was a pair of them that used to come to my first job. And whenever they would come in for their wellness checks and we had um, vet tech students that were there, I would always call them over because I'd be like, oh my God, look, you can see everything. Like, look, here's this like a lateral saphenous vein on a cat that sometimes you have to put a catheter into. Look, there it is. Or the elusive cat jugular that's so hard to learn when you're first um, learning venipuncture in small animals, there it is. It just like pops right up. So, you know, they're, they're fun for, uh, for, for venipuncture anatomy. That's for sure. Especially when you're just learning on cats, cause they can be so tricky. Now I mentioned the 
selective breeding that we do. So all current sphinxes are, they're likely to be derived in one way or another uh, from a couple cats in the 70s. Now, when I say a couple cats, I'm talking like five. Like Remember the Pekingese? Remember when we talked about the Pekingese, how there was like, you know, like four Pekingese that every single Pekingese is derived from? Well, this is a similar situation. Um, these guys originated from Minnesota and Canada, not a big gene pool. I mean, this is lots of mothers and brothers screwing each other's cousins, you know, all that. So my personal favorite factoid from all of this actually is that two of these original cats were named Dermis and Epidermis. <laughs> and they were they were barn cats in Minnesota. I mean, you can't make that up. So these these farmers in Minnesota, they would see that there were a couple of these hairless Smeagol kittens that would pop up in the barn cat population. And so what they did is they actually sold some of those hairless kittens to a breeder who then bred the kittens with their mothers and their cousins' mothers and mothers' kittens to give us these expensive and popular sphinx cats. Now, let's talk about this gene and what this does. So what this gene does, it encodes for keratin. Now keratin is what makes up our hair. Um, it makes up our fingernails. Uh, the rhinoceros horn is made up of keratin and mutations. They can occur at different alleles of the same gene. Y'all remember this, those little genes, the little branches called the alleles. And so depending on where the mutation is, like different things will be expressed. And there's actually there's another breed that's called a Cornish Rex, and that guy, he's not completely hairless, but he, he's got the same kind of bug eyes and the wedge head, but he's got this, um, this short curly hair all over their body. So that's a slightly different expression um, on the same gene, but it's a, a different, different place on the allele where the mutation occurs. Now, the sphinx mutation, that leads uh, to the hair follicle losing its ability to keratinize hair at all. So it means that hair could tech, it technically conform, but it's damaged, it's not right, and so it's lost right away. So that's why they that's why they don't have hair, but they sometimes have like a little bit of fuzziness to them. So they can grow it, it just it's damaged and it's not right, and they can't keratinize it to make it stay. So what would be the consequences of this, right? I mean, you, you know, hairless pink thing, sure. But the consequences of of a of not being able to have keratin in your body. So anything that hair might distribute, so like, say, skin oils, um, cats have very furry ears, so earwax, oils in their ears, all those things that hair naturally distributes away from uh, the epidermis just builds up. And if you've treated hairless cats in the clinic, you know that they have the worst ears, like filthy, dirty waxy, sticky chunks, gross ears. And it's because they don't have the hair that normally all that oil and dirt is distributed away from the skin, uh, from the skin with. So that's a thing. Now you have to, because of this, you have to bathe these cats to clear some of that skin oil, which is something that nature never intended humans to do with cats. Uh, we talked about your fingernails, right? So the nail beds of these cats can get filthy and infected. Um, their claws, they're flaky and they're fragile and they're gross. Uh, the skin folds that these cats have, I'm sure you've seen some internet meme pictures of overweight 
hairless cats with all their folds. Those skin folds, they get nasty. Like they get, they have to get cleaned like a bulldog, you know, like in between those folds. That's a, that's a, a high maintenance situation that you have when you've got, when you don't have the hair doing what it normally does on a normal animal. This is another, and you know, thank you for this, this wonder of human invention. Uh, Minnesota barn cat people. Now, they also don't have eyelashes, right? So they can have eye problems. Their eyes aren't protected like normal cat's eyes are. Something that I just learned, I didn't know about this, but you know, the kittens, they can have respiratory problems because of course, another type of hair that you have in your body are cilia in your respiratory tract. And so if you've got damaged or inadequate cilia in your respiratory tract, you're not able to really kind of kind of clear secretions, which contain things like bacteria and, and fungal spores and all that type of stuff that normally you can clear away. The kittens don't have that natural defense. And so they can get these respiratory inf- tract infections that can really be a problem for them when they're young. Now, I stumbled down an internet rabbit hole of hairless cat grooming products. There are entire websites dedicated to this, like clothes, waterless cat bath spray. Um, I found a book that was called Cat Grooming 101, authored by Furry Toe Beans. Furry Toe Beans has a registered trademark symbol by their name. So don't go biting off that Furry Toe Beans empire because they'll come and get you. I found shower caps that you can buy on Amazon, a set of 20 of those for your hairless cat bathing experiences. Oh, and you you better believe Etsy has got a piece of this too, because I found an $82 hairless cat grooming kit on Etsy. Oh, conveniently offered um, in installments of payment if you didn't want to pay all $82 at once. So yes, that's out there. Um, I do feel like I have to address this question that I'm sure some of you are wondering out there. Um, you know, are hairless cats hypoallergenic? Like, I love kitties, but I'm really allergic to them. Oh my God, I'll get a hairless cat. That'll solve all the problems. Hell no. Hell no. That will not solve your problem. So the allergen, the allergen that you're allergic to is in the skin oil. And we've already talked about how greased up these cats can get with their oil and their wax in their bits. It's not all right. You will not be allergy free because you bought a hairless cat. Might be worse, actually. Um, And of course, like most inbred things that you're paying for, they have systemic problems. uh, Because when you breed something so selectively for one particular trait, what you're not doing is breeding it for for robustness, for health, for like all of the things that a diverse gene pool will provide you with. So these guys, they're prone to heart disease. Um, there's neurological disorders that these cats will get. Um, and it's all because they've narrowed the gene pool so much with all of the sex with the kittens having sex with their mothers and all that, that they're really prone to that type of thing. And I know it sounds really crass when you talk about like the kitten mother sex, but that's what you're spending your money on when you buy breeds. These cats are not 
inexpensive. In fact, I've seen, oh God, there was some celebrity who was on YouTube the other day and they had a munchkin hairless cat. Let's just think about how narrow that family tree has to be in order to have a munchkin hairless cat because you know the munchkins those are those cats that have their really really short front legs so veterinary technicians oh they'll love you forever for that give have them to put an ivy catheter in a munchkin cat well if it's a hairless one maybe we'll be stoked because then we'll actually see the vein in there (laughs) but it's going to be the size of a it's going to be the size of a little freaking tiny ass little worm it's going to be nothing in that tiny leg that's why they're so expensive. You know, they're, they're so expensive because it takes a, it, it, it takes a lot of work um, on the human's end to narrow the gene pool that much to have that mutation so specific. But it's also exactly that that causes so many health problems. So this is my little PSA. Adopt a shelter cat. Don't spend the money on a hairless munchkin alien you have survived another episode of cat disgusted veterinary technicians veterinarians know that i see you out there i see you getting stabbed getting stabbed real good um more power to you here's to better times thank you for listening everybody COVID 19 bye-bye Real free.